It's great to be here. If you're new and uh, we've not met, my name is Ollie. I'm an ordinance here at Holy Trinity. And for the past six weeks, we've been journeying through Ephesians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the early church in Ephesus. And let's just remind ourselves of where we've got to so far. Paul writes this letter to the church, to the collective body of Christ. And he begins by saying what our identity is in him, the church. We who have put our faith in Christ, we have been chosen by God, we've been adopted into his family, we are co-heirs with Christ. And that means that all the riches that Christ has in heaven, we also have. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us as believers in him. We once were dead in our sin, and now we are raised and are alive in Christ. And this includes all of us, Jew and Gentile, all people groups receive the same gift in Christ, every one of us. And now that we have this new identity as the church, this body of believers in Jesus, He has called us to set aside our primary individual identities, all the things we naturally cling to, the things that we say make us who we are. He says, set them aside for the sake of something else. The old ways of defining yourself are no longer the primary things that define you. But instead, together, you have become something new in Christ that overrides everything else. You are a new community called the church. And we're gathered here together with different heritages, identities, and backgrounds represented. And we don't discard them all. Paul calls us here to set them to one side for the sake of a new corporate identity. And that's part of what it means to become mature in Christ as Paul says earlier in chapter 4, that we may be grown up, rooted, and grounded in him. We are made into a new society. And our passage this morning marks the turning point in the letter. Up until now, Paul's been emphasizing what the church is. And now he turns and says, in light of all of that, this is how you are to behave. He begins chapter 4, Live a life worthy of the calling that you have. In other words, this is how we are to live out our new Christian identity day to day. So this is practical stuff this morning. And this calling that we have is a communal calling, not primarily an individual or personal one. So these words that he says to us now, he says to his church, to us here today. They don't actually really apply to those outside of the people of God, to a world that has not yet said yes to Jesus. They apply to those of us who have said yes to Jesus at some point. So if you're sitting here today and you've not yet said yes to Jesus in your own life, and you're interested in this thing called church, these words won't necessarily apply to you until the moment that you say yes to Jesus. But listen in anyway, because once you've said yes, this is what you're signing up for. So what does this Christian identity look like? Well, Paul starts by saying this is what it doesn't look like. Let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 4 on page 
100, no, 1,176. There are Bibles under your seats, um, and we're going from verse 17 to the end. It should also appear on the screen if I can do this. He says, or actually, Jane, I'll leave it to you. Uh, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of very practical, convicting stuff, so we'll break it up from verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul starts this section by telling us this is how you should no longer live. And what I'm about to say is what you need to set down and put away from yourself to be part of this new community, the church. So straight away, there's this expectation that when we acknowledge a new king over us, the community is to put off an old way of living and embrace the new. But often I find, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, when we try and stop a way that we're living, remove bad habits, take up new ones, I tend to tinker around on the surface at the symptoms, but I rarely get to the root cause behind what kind of got me there in the first place. So I'll start by watching a very educational documentary or spiritually uplifting video, and before I know it, I'm in some YouTube spiral from Tottenham transfer deadlines to inside goss from Justin Bieber's mum or something, Uh, and I think, how did I get here? There are so many better uses of my time. Paul himself says in Romans, the things I really want to do, I can't. And what I want to do, I keep doing it. What I don't want to do, I keep doing it. So I'm not the only one. Back to Ephesians. Paul says in verse 17, live no longer as the Gentiles live 
by which he means broadly the nations, those outside of this new community. Don't live any longer like that. So what is that? Have a look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So he's unpacking an argument. There's a flow. Look at the words here. They, they, the people outside of the church, are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Due to the hardness of heart. There is a flow through this key verse They are darkened in their understanding. And to be darkened in understanding is to be blinded, often by feelings and desires. To be blinded. To think things are one way when actually they're another. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. He takes the idea of the mind here and says, we are darkened, we are blinded in our understanding our feelings, our desires. He continues, we're alienated from the life of God. In other words, the good things, the blessings from living with God, we no longer receive because of ignorance. And ignorance is caused by the hardness of heart. That's the root cause, hardness of heart. Our hearts were hard. We were numb to the things of God. We numbed and paralyzed our spiritual selves. There's like a willful rejection of the purposes of God. Like we deliberately numbed ourselves to his word. Let's work backwards from that. Bear with me. Paul's saying our daily choices lead from hard hearts to ignorance and foolishness to alienation from the life of God and darkened understanding. That takes us on to verse 19. They have become callous. In other words, they've lost all sensitivity. And so, as a result of becoming spiritually numb to the things of God, they have become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And being callous means you're no longer able to feel pain or grief. Or, or love from God. Many of us carry around hurt and pain, grief and insecurity. And the broken human response to that is usually to harden our hearts because we don't really want to feel it. But in order to feel something, we mask the pain and we give ourselves over to sensual indulgence, to greed, impurity hedonistic activity, short-term thrills and excitement. Now, if you have any relationship at all, if you have a father or mother or brother or sister or significant other or a friend, you'll probably recognize this. I'm going to use the whiteboard. I'm not really used to this, but bear with me. So we start with hurt. usually caused by other people, and accidentally or deliberately, this is a result of sin. 
And at church, we sometimes say a corporate confession through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate faults. Sin doesn't have to be a deliberate thing to be hurtful or cause pain. And what's at the root of sin? It's selfishness. It's putting me at the center of the world. And selfishness that causes sin, that causes hurt, is actually caused at the root by self-preservation. How do we break the cycle? Paul tells us in verse 20 and onwards, we soak ourselves in Jesus. Like baptism, we are soaked in the water as a sign of putting off the old way of life, and we emerge a new creation. Now we put on a new way of being. Verse 20, Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to a former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the way that we break this cycle is to soak ourselves in Jesus. How do we do that? Well, not all self-preservation is wrong, but when we're self-centered, it can lead to sin and to hurt. And so what we sometimes see in our lives and in the church is this cycle or spiral with each other. Because I've been hurt, so I go into self-preservation mode, which causes me to be selfish, which leads me to sin, which hurts others, and the cycle goes on. Maybe we could just reflect on a time where you may have experienced hurt and see if you recognize this. And to mask the pain, often we're tempted to partake in degrees of sensuality or practices of impurity, big things or small, to numb ourselves to God. But verse 20, Paul says, This is not the way you learned Christ. We need to put ourselves in places where we receive the word of God. We receive the words of Jesus and experience his love. Verse 21, you heard about Jesus and were taught in him. We don't just learn about Jesus. He's also the very environment that we train under as Christians. And all this amounts to discarding the old ways of living that are corrupt and deceitful. Verse 22, the old life is corrupt. It's totally broken in thought, word, and deed. Not only that, it's deceitful. It's like a scam artist convincing you that what they're offering is good, when in fact it's the very opposite of good. And we can fall into these old habits. 
this has been a command for the church to break this cycle from the very beginning. This isn't new, but it is a reminder. And just in case we need reminding, the Christian life is not an add-on or something to fill our Sunday mornings. It's a wholesale shift away from what was before as we embrace something new. So we break the cycle by soaking in Jesus. But how do we put it into practice? Well, Paul tells us some things we are to avoid, but not just that. He tells us some things we can step into. And these fall into three categories, our words, our feelings, and our actions. Words, feelings, actions. If we're to break the cycle of sinning against one another and hurting one another, how do we change our behavior? The first is with our words. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He's saying, stop lying. Even the white lies. Lying leads to a breakdown of trust. It's the number one thing that relationships are built on. It's trust. That someone's words are correct. And when we're members of one body, either in the church or in a marriage, and we don't tell the truth, we're actually lying against ourselves because we're members of one body. And the way we resist falsehoods springing up is to speak truth, Paul says. Speak Jesus to each other. He's present in all our conversation. So we speak the truth in love and compassion. Secondly, in terms of words, we're to be mindful of how we speak to one another. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The word corrupting here is like rotten, like rotten fish or rotten fruit. Let nothing, nothing rotten come out of your mouth. But instead of tearing down or rotten fish talk, let's build up. We encourage. We thank people. We strengthen others by our words. And we all need words of grace, especially from our brothers and sisters in Christ. The third area of our words is slander. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The word clamor here means brawling, physical fighting. So yeah, don't do that, if that's a temptation. But one of those is slander, taking someone else out by your words, talking bad about them, or injuring someone's reputation and character. And often it can be based on incomplete information. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Speak well of one another. So he's correcting our lying, corrupt talk, and slander. Secondly, the area of our feelings, specifically anger. Verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Notice he doesn't say, don't be angry. There's good anger and bad anger. But when you feel anger, don't express it in a way that will lead you into sin. 
And don't give any opportunity for the devil to step in. There is an anger that creates an incentive to act well. And sometimes it's actually apathy that's the sin, not anger. There is a good place for righteous anger against injustice. And how do we make sure it's the right anger? Well, Paul gives us three checks. He warns us not to sin when you're angry. Anger that is self-serving about injured pride or not getting our way is not good anger. So don't sin. Secondly, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't nurse it. Don't stew in it. Don't let it fester. And don't end the day angry. Make a plan in advance not to do so. And thirdly, don't let the enemy have a foothold in your emotions. The enemy's waiting for you to mess up. He knows there's a fine line between good anger and bad anger. And he's looking for opportunities to make you hateful and bitter. But verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now these feelings are all very normal part of the human condition. Otherwise Paul wouldn't have to write it. But he's just warning the church against it. So he's spoken about our words our feelings, and finally, our actions. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Well, I don't steal, so I'm okay on that one, I guess. Are there other alternative ways that we take from others? or take shortcuts for financial gain. Our words, our emotions, and our actions work to either unite us together as one church or divide us, to build us up or tear us apart. They can all trip us up if we're not careful and not soaking ourselves in Jesus. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul says these toxic words, feelings, and actions, they don't just have a human impact. They actually have a spiritual impact as well. The Holy Spirit can be grieved by how we are with one another. It's like we make our Father in heaven sad with how we act, think, and speak, because ultimately he loves his church more than we do. But if you're sat here thinking, I don't even know where to start, there's a really important verse at the end of this passage. It says this, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There is a high bar, but we don't live earning our place in the kingdom of heaven. We live under grace. We live knowing that God loves us as demonstrated at the cross and that we won't always get this right. But even with one step in this direction, it'll work out better for his church. 
to be united in one spirit and mature in the faith. It's like he's saying, if all else fails, do this. Be kind. Be tender-hearted when we screw up. Forgive each other when we wrong each other. As God in Christ forgave you. Because in him we've received so much. And so he's asking that we step into this direction of travel. To stop the hurt of pain that leads to sin. And instead live a life worthy of the calling that we have. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are so kind and so loving to us, your people. And we know that we need a lot of help in how we treat each other that would better reflect your love for us. Forgive us, Lord, for where we've messed up and torn apart relationships. Renew our minds by your Holy Spirit that we may honor you in all our words, feelings, and actions. In Jesus' name. Amen.